Hello, and welcome to the Healthcare Leadership Mindset. I'm your host, Yolanda Gonzalez, former administrative fellow and current administrative director at Mass General Hospital, located in Boston, Massachusetts. I invite you to join me as I engage with leaders in various roles across the healthcare field to gain real-life insights into their work challenges, the skills that have helped them succeed, and advice on how to get started if this is a path for you. So what are you waiting for? Let's start the journey today. Hey everyone, before I dive into today's episode, I want to take a moment and give a special shout out to Cornell MHA. Here's what they said in their review on Apple Podcasts. As an aspiring healthcare administrator, I have really enjoyed the content on this podcast. Yolanda asks fantastic questions and the guests have been intentional about providing answers that help early careerists guide their professional journey. This has quickly become one of my favorite lessons. Thanks so much, Cornell MHA. That means a lot and every review helps. If you'd like to receive a shout out on a future episode, leave a review for the show on Apple Podcast. Also, post a screenshot of you listening on Instagram and tag me at the Healthcare Leadership Mindset so I can thank you personally. And with that, thank you, and let's go ahead and dive into today's episode. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Franz Berthod. Franz is Administrative Director of Disease Center Operations at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, located in Boston, Massachusetts. At Dana-Farber, he serves as co-chair for the Employee Resource Group, shaping and informing the Institute's diversity, equity, and inclusion strategy, and on the hospital's ethics committee. Franz also teaches healthcare strategy at the graduate school level at Boston University School of Public Health, where he also serves on an advisory board. Franz is a member of the American College of Healthcare Executives, serving as co-chair on the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee, and as a member of the Programs Committees. In today's episode, we'll be diving into Franz's career at Dana-Farber, his involvement in diversity, equity, and inclusion, advice to healthcare leaders on how they can and how they should advance these important and much needed efforts within their own organizations and so much more. So Franz, I've known you for several years now and I'm honored to have you on today's episode. Thank you for all of the amazing work that you've been doing and for being here today. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'm I'm super excited to, to get into some of the subject matter with you. Can you share a little bit of background on yourself and provide us with a current overview of your role at Dana-Farber? I'm originally Brooklyn, New York. I was born in in Queens, but I'm a Yankees fan, not a Mets fan. Just want to make sure that's that's out there. Um, And uh, I attended Boston College. uh, And and why I kind of go that far back is all of this kind of... um, our ingredients to the, the the final mix, if you will, of why I am so passionate about um, health equity in, in, in that space. Um, so thinking of, of you know major metropolitans and, and um, either growing up in New York and, and here in Massachusetts as well, and then going to school in Boston um, and seeing, uh, especially at Boston College, I'll share not many folks that look like myself. It's a predominantly white institution, um, and and I did uh, got my degree in biology and philosophy, kind of two things that are on opposite ends of the spectrum. Um, and I always look at it as I can be a professional thinker, if anything, if uh, you know, if, if uh, I can't seem to get a job that's science based. But for me, it was this idea of how do we use 
um, elements of, of philosophy and ideas and the way that we think and the way that we problem solve, the way we think about the world around us to advance what we do um, in the science space. And for me, I knew I was going to be in healthcare. Um, I thought it would be as a doctor uh, and, and throughout my early in my career, and certainly after leaving college and getting my master's at, at BU School of Public Health um, um, in, with a focus on healthcare administration and policy, uh, what was illuminated to me early on was the uh, potential impact of um, either impacting as a direct care provider, you know, say uh, several thousand patients on an annual basis. And then as a healthcare leader, several, maybe not several, but like a million or the hundreds of thousands of lives that you can impact when you're leading an organization, um, you're leading efforts, you're leading initiatives. And then when you think about um, specifically where I'm at with my, my focus and my career being on oncology, and then with this kind of undercurrent and underlying passion of, of health equity, diversity, um, equity and inclusion, uh, the potential to make impact that is life changing and uh, transformational to organizations beyond your own tenure. I mean, that is, that's, that's tantalizing, right? Like that's very appetizing and the sheer thought of it that, so for me, that's kind of uh, why I was able to make that shift from trying to be and thinking about being a direct care provider um, to becoming a healthcare leader and, and kind of vying for that, wanting to be that, uh, to make the greatest impact on the greatest amount of people. You said that you knew you wanted to be in healthcare. So what was it that made you have that recognition or just that knowing of that pathway that you wanted to pursue? Growing up, I think it's easy enough to see the inequities. Um, we can be naive enough when most folks around us are at that same socioeconomic level. Um, uh, and so you're almost like, well, you, you don't know you're broke because we're all broke together. Like, you know, like there's almost a, a camaraderie with uh, with the folks you grew up in your in your neighborhood. Um, but once you go beyond that perimeter and you start to understand the haves and the have-nots, and for me, it, it centered around um, economy and healthcare. Those those were the two um, biggest, uh, I would say, kind of uh, flares or glaring points. Um, of understanding that some people can do this and have this and others cannot. And it was much later as I grew up to understand why and kind of the historical context and implications of policies and practices that are put in place at whether it's, I mean, historically we're talking federal, like national level, um, local and municipalities, and then even within organizations and their impacts in how those things just proliferate from from one generation to the next. And um, that was, not only was I fascinated by it, but it also gave a little bit of that fire to say like, like what if, what if I had the audacity to want to, to change that? And so like, here I am, like maybe like stupid or stupidly or super hopeful. That's kind of how I, how I walk through this world say other uh, students or listeners know, yes, I want to go into healthcare, but a lot of times 
they question, do I pursue a master's of health administration, master's of public health, uh, you know, master's of business administration. What was it in your pathway that led you to obtain a master's of public health? This is a great question because I, I knew I had to make kind of some of this discernment uh, to your point that the MHA, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit older. So uh, the MHA wasn't as hot back then as it is now. Um, and I say that respectfully, the, the certainly the MPH, which even at that point didn't have as much uh, um, or perceived as much breadth and depth as some of these others like MBA um, um healthcare focus MBA degrees. Um, so I had to make this discernment and understand like, like what do I actually do? And, and I'll credit it to um, the philosophy background that I had because um, the understanding of how can you like, and honestly make the greatest impact on the greatest amount of people. Um, and and it's, a, it's kind of a mantra that I, I, that circulates through my mind often. Um, and public health for me um, was that perfect juncture between understanding the impact of the world around us with regard to healthcare on people and of people, um, then understanding well, what are the parts of the healthcare system that have the greatest impact. So we think about healthcare finance and how does that impact just demographics and groups of people um, the allocating of resources. Uh, you, you talk about health education um, and, and kind of promotion. Um, and so all of these elements within the healthcare system that happen in hospitals, that happen outside of hospitals, um, and understanding like how do the decisions that happen within the walls of that hospital impact the people that come to the hospital and even the folks who live in the neighborhoods around that. And I really wanted that because I, I knew that I was just like, I'm a, a sum um, of all the experiences and the people around me. And so I know that healthcare is just the same. So the healthcare that's provided within hospitals or in other uh, um, types of healthcare organizations is really just part of, and a piece of the health system that's like, directly around them, whether it's the folks who live in, in those neighborhoods, the folks who live in, in that region, um, the, the, the money, the levels of class that are in that area, you know, a healthcare organization in Beverly Hills is very different than rural Texas. And, and I, I think I understood that um, of the, what people's lived experiences are in the lived world. And I wanted to ensure that the education that I got that was a huge part of it. Not to knock any other health-related degrees, but I knew that I, in in order to have that really large, um, transformative impact on large groups of people, and, and and selfishly a lot in thinking about people that look like me, um, as as a black man, I was like, well, what is the degree that they're taught from the very beginning? about these things. You know, I joke about it with some of um, my colleagues and folks in my network that in public health, we've been talking about the social determinants of health since the very beginning. And in all other parts of healthcare, I feel like they just started talking about it. Like, did you know, you know, if a, a, a patient who's experiencing homelessness 
and you discharge them from the emergency room, they don't have anywhere to go. And I'm like, yes, yes. We, I think that was like public health 101. <laughs> and so I wanted to infuse that type of thinking and understanding into how I operate as a healthcare leader. I'm so excited to dive into how you're applying that now within your role. And I, I think something that I'm hearing in your responses that you've said so far is really looking to make that transformative impact. That's something that's really powerful for people who are going into healthcare and, and serving in healthcare administration roles is, um, you know, you, you do play a big role. You can make a big impact and there really isn't a boundary or a limit, you know, there can be a boundary when you think of a hospital within like, oh, okay, I'm just going to an organization. What I do stays within these four walls. But what you're saying is like, no, it's so much beyond that. You know, we have to think outside and all these different factors that can impact healthcare. So um, I'm really excited to dive more into that in um, in your current role. But before we get to that, the other question that I get asked is, you know, what are some resources that I can take advantage of or events or networking opportunities that can help me land an internship or my next job role? So what's your advice to people who are asking that question? Um, That's a great question. I think the same way that when you think about the future of healthcare, it's not always going to be in that hospital on a hill, right? That, that kind of um, the, the brick and mortar hospital. And we have to kind of approach the networking, the, the inter- intern kind of uh, internship searching in the same manner. So going beyond thinking that where you want to be is just in a hospital, right? We're thinking about healthcare at home, certainly retail um, uh, health, uh, things that are coming out of uh, public health schools. And so like you want to expand that search to, to, to widen your net and hopefully yield something. So if there's a, a school of public health um, or an academic medical center where you may live, it's a reaching out to, to folks within those areas because everyone is doing research. I think often what people don't recognize is that anytime anything is done, it is a piece of research because if you are tracking it, you're tracking it for a reason and your thought process is, are we trying to illuminate an issue that we think is happening, right? The, you know, they say three points is a trend and I'm like, that's a research. Whether it's quantitative or the networking and the conversations you're having, that's like qualitative research. So going into those spaces and trying to have those conversations and finding out what people are doing and what you're interested in, and then seeing how you can be of service to them, um, I think is huge. So kind of taking it from that, uh, that service mentality, that mindset of how can I serve this organization, be of service to it. Um, a lot of people and leaders will look at that as just a wonderful opportunity, not only to mentor, but like, all right, someone's going to come and help me do something. Um, and they're going to get something out of it. And, and the organization itself will also um, be benefiting from that type of, kind of symbiotic relationship. Exactly. And being of service to others is a great way to get noticed. And especially now where we've all grown more comfortable with a virtual world, like 
your network doesn't just have to mean, oh, I have to go to this event, this in-person event. Like there's opportunities that you can virtually just like log into and get to meet others. Um, and I think that there's something that's really exciting about the type of collaborations or the type of work and um, connections that you can make through that. Without a doubt. And of course, flexing your, your own network, I think oftentimes, um, certainly after you graduate from an undergrad degree um, or you live in a, in, in a city where like you can tap into the people that you know the people that you know that know other people. And even if it's just tangentially related to healthcare, I think the opportunity to chat with someone and to your point via Zoom, 15 minutes, you know, that's no sweat off our back as healthcare leaders to just chat with individuals about like, what are you interested in? Here's what I'm working on. Is that interesting to you? Um, I think that's how we we really start the, the conversations um, that get, folks into those spaces of, of kind of getting their hands dirty in the healthcare space. In my experience, a lot of people that I've reached out to that I've wanted to have a conversation with have been so willing to just talk to me. Like the, I think that's what's nice about healthcare is a lot of people who are in this industry really do come with the intentionality of serving others. So yes, if it's if it's a 15 minute conversation and people come prepared with questions and there's a connection that I can make, I'm more than happy to speak to someone. I hope that gives, you know, uh, encouragement to others who may be, you know, a little shy of reaching out or thinking they're being intrusive. You know, you can be as bold as to like DM Dr. Fauci, like, hey, I want to talk, but I'm like, you may get a yes. But you may gotta know, like it's a 50-50 chance. Yeah, maybe like 90-10. Right. <laughs> um, so let's let's talk a little bit about your current role. I would love for you to talk to us about Dana Farber Cancer Institute. Can you provide an overview of the structure, the mission, and the culture of Dana Farber? Absolutely. So we are a um, NCI uh, nationally designated uh, cancer center, comprehensive cancer center. You know, we we fashion ourselves as a 50-50 organization. So 50% clinical care and 50% clinical research. Like we, we are heavy on, on that piece. And what we kind of, um, uh, we call it like translational research, being able to take it from the bench or within the kind of laboratory and directly into the clinical space um, to the point that we even have like physical bridges that um, from our the different clinical floors in, our, in the Yaki building uh, where uh, care is provided um, for the adult uh, program, uh, physical bridges that between labs and the clinical floor, right? To even uh, foster this type of environment of collaboration and this back and forth between like the, the hard science and then the, the clinical research and bring it into the clinical space to provide care for patients. Um, so big on that, uh, our uh, kind of only service line, if you want to think of it like that, is oncology. Uh, and really our kind of mission and our focus is not only to um, do our best to conquer cancer, um, but I think is, is also... Um, which is a part that I, I kind of endear about the organization is we want to eliminate even the fear that cancer engenders. So um, 
the type of support that we offer, uh, the wraparound services that we offer for our patients is incredibly deliberate because we know the impact of cancer itself is not only on the body, it's not only on the patient, not only on that person, but kind of their, their sphere and the folks around them, um, on their kind of personal economics, on, on their, their family dynamics. So we kind of throw everything at cancer, um, really kind of the, the, whole, uh, the whole battalion from a kind of a, an emotional, uh, certainly a clinical and a research um, perspective. That's amazing. I applaud you for all the work that you and your organization are doing. And that's exactly what I envisioned when you kind of said we, we have, you know, all, all hands are on deck at right. going against this, um, this disease and, and helping that patient. What got you into Dana-Farber to begin with? Like, how did your career pathway um, look like when you first started? And how has that progressed to where you are now? That's a great question because I started off in kind of the clinical research space, um, working with uh, patients who are on different protocols, so they're on clinical trials, getting them scheduled, right? This was straight out of college, getting them scheduled for their clinical trial appointments. Um, and it was um, in that, while I was going through that and, and really started to recognize my affinity for efficiency and, and transformation and, and even process improvement and thought like, well, if we change this and it, and it benefits all our patients here, like, can, if you extrapolate that, like, what else can we do? Um, and that's what got me more into the systems thinking um, approach uh, within, within healthcare and specifically within Dana Farber. And I've been there for, you know, next month will be 13 years. So I'll officially be a teenager. Um, and, and people ask, like, you know, that's a long time to, to be in one organization. I'm also like, well, Kobe Bryant stayed with the Lakers his entire career. <laughs> so I don't think that's, like, terrible. But in, in all honesty, it's because as certainly in cancer and all of healthcare, but it's changing. Like, every few years, like, the, the amount of change and transformation that's happening within the healthcare space and how we approach healthcare, how we fund healthcare, um, and within oncology, the precision medicine, like the science changes, you know, at the blink of an eye. And so the thought for me was always like, it is new. It is important because it is kind of this regeneration every few years. And so how we're approaching it um, and how we're um, operating within the organization as a business, right? Let's be real. Healthcare is big business. And, um, all of that continues to kind of change and, and it keeps me on my toes. And so that's why I've been at the organization for as long as I've been. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing with, with healthcare. I, I find that you can learn so much on a daily basis. Like there's not a day that I leave that I leave being like, oh, I knew everything that happened today. You know, like it was just like, wow, this came out of nowhere. And like, and it, it does keep you on your toes. In your role as an administrative director, what does that day-to-day -day look like in terms of like, what are the things that you really love doing? What are the things that are a little bit more challenging? Like what, um, give us some insight into that. Absolutely. So I'll, I'll say at Dana-Farber's, you know, on the service line is cancer. Um, if you look at the, the structures where we're uh, organized by disease centers. So there's one a, a disease center that's specific to breast. 
uh, breast oncology than, than lung kind of thinking. I just want to kind of lay that um, groundwork. And so I'm in charge of uh, and, and accountable for our lung uh, cancer center, as well as our phase one. So experimental therapeutics, it's our center for cancer therapeutic innovation. And what that really looks like, um, I'll say kind of two lenses. One is the personnel. So we're talking large groups of people um, accountable for the physicians, the, the nursing um, in the group, the administrative staff. And because of course, part of our bread and butter is uh, clinical research, we have a huge clinical trial um, infrastructure. Um, and, and that enterprise and within each disease center comprises of clinical trial staff or research data specialists, clinical research coordinators. Um, and so serving as the, the kind of administrative apex for that entire engine, um, one is super exciting. And, and two, to what you alluded to, there are parts of it that I'm like, yes, I love this. And other parts of it, like, can someone else do this particular thing, right? Um, and the I would say the personnel for me is uh, without a doubt the the best part of my my role, um, because with the the same mantra and philosophy I had around having the greatest impact uh, for the greatest amount of people, I know that if. I do my job really, really well, and certainly in how I supervise, encourage, and inspire my staff. Um, their potential to impact the number of lives and patients um, is kind of like tenfold. And that's inclusive of our physicians, right? I, I care deeply. I'm a big kind of organizational culture guy um, because I know that with the right environment, Right, you get your sunlight, you get your water. Like, you know, we can grow some some beautiful things. And I think about um, staff, and I think about how do we cultivate um, places and spaces to enable that. Um, because when patients walk through the door, you have to assume this is the worst day of their lives, right? And if we if we kind of start with that type of thinking, then if our goal is to make this the best day, or and we're inching closer to a better day. Then I'm like, well, then we are, we are moving mountains. We're like shifting tectonic plates because that's what it feels like. The when when someone is given the diagnosis of, of cancer, the, the big C word. I think um, that's a lot of weight. That's a lot of fear. And so turning that on and, and inspiring our staff to kind of turn that on, to turn people's days around. I, I live one day at a time. And I think, because that's certainly how our patients do. So I try to approach it in the same manner. The theme of having that impact through others really shines and comes through and the response that you gave. What are some of the things that you have done that helped you grow others and, and help them serve the patients that come through you, through the door? That's a, that's a fantastic question. And, and, and why I'm, I'm giggling is because um, it came after I got a better sense of who I was. It's, it's much harder to try to provide clarity um, to staff and folks around whether, and it's certainly in this last year and a half, right, of what the future looks like. You're trying to galvanize people to do something. Um, and when it, and it feels like it might be something hard or insurmountable, 
right? People think about the pandemic, like, are we ever going to get out of it? Um, I think, honestly, I was really well prepared because when we think about cancer, we, we kind of operate in this uh, space of hope, like, no, we're going to work our butts off to do anything and everything we can to rid the world of this, um, uh, or at least to make it easier to live with. Um, so I think the approach to the pandemic was essentially the same way. How do we move mountains? How do we shift things um, to, to enable that? Um, and I wanna, so I wanna go back to how I got there. Um, so gaining clarity in myself and understanding kind of my, my mission, um, it's a, certainly Dana-Farber is a very mission-driven organization. And a lot of people come to work there because of that. And I think I, what I posit or kind of what I ask folks is what is their personal mission? Um, there's this exercise and I'll give a shout out to Dr. David Doherty, um, who's a, a great friend, um, leader of our network at um, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. And he talks about this personal, personal mission statement. Um, and it's almost you working through your career and your life and understand like, all right, in a few lines, like what's my actual purpose? Like, what do we act I actually want to do? And why you keep hearing me reference things like the greatest impact for the greatest impact. And it sounds like it is this repetitive and cyclical. I'm like, well, because it is, it's the same thing that shows up in every single part of my life, whether it's in parenting, whether it's in you know, partnership, um, whether it's in um, certainly career and education. And so uh, how I got there was gaining a lot of clarity as to who I was and what I wanted and what I wanted to do. Um, we each, every kind of every individual, we bring something unique to the places and spaces that we walk into. And oftentimes, I think as people of color, women, minoritized individuals, we often feel like we shouldn't be there. And, and there's a little bit of that um, imposter syndrome. Um, and, but really what it means is that in us owning and understanding that, that the difference in what we're bringing, like no one else has that. No one else has that, that flavor, that little something that we're bringing that, that can have such impact into uh, in organizations in groups right even if we go more micro in like just teams right and when you're on a group project like you're bringing something that someone else in that group project just doesn't have like you you got that um and i think owning that uniqueness and owning that that part of you and finding clarity and how do you now um, be yourself um, so that you can give yourself fully um, there, so gaining that clarity in who you are um, often gives you clarity in, in who you want to become. And for me, that was, that's been how I, how I operate. I want to frame something you said, which is owning your uniqueness, because I can tell you from personal experience, it's so easy to compare yourself to others and looking at their skill sets and trying to match yourself up. And I'm like, it's exhausting. Like it's never, um, you're never going to be on the exact same level of skill set as someone else. And that's okay because it's like you said, owning your uniqueness and recognizing that you bring value to the table and it doesn't have to look like 
what the person is next to you bringing and that's totally okay. I think what, what happens is, especially for young, for young leaders, um, is you're amongst people who are 10, 20 years your, your senior and you know, we're like, I want this. I want this. I want to do this. I want to shine. I'm, I'm like, yeah, I get that. It's also going to take us time, right? I think there's a there's a little bit of of recognizing um, that time should be something we honor because we're only going to get better. So I think about who I'm going to be five, ten years from now and get excited by that because I know the environment and what the world might look like is going to transform. It's going to change. Um, certainly within the healthcare space. And so I'm like, wow, I'm only going to get better. You know, and I got you know, some, some salt and pepper going on in my beard now. Um, you know, having a, my, my daughter will be four this weekend. And I'm like, okay, but this is good. I'm like, and so I think about my career and my growth as like, you want a little bit of salt and pepper um, in your career. You want your career to have some gray hairs, right? It, it gives you the sense of like, I've seen some things, I've been through some things and some experiences and been exposed that are going to benefit the future me. It's going to benefit the present me, but also the future me. And then it's going to benefit the present organization where you are and the future organization and places that you'll be in. I want to ask you, what does it mean to you to have diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace? And why is that important? You know, it, it's huge. Um, and, and I'll give you um, a, an example. And, and personally, right, my sister went through her, her cancer journey um, and, and passed away from uh, triple negative breast cancer at the age of 40. Um, diagnosed at 39, passed at 40. Um, so we, we, had a, we had a bit of time together to experience, um, and for me to experience outside of being an employee or outside of being like, oh, you're an expert in this. It's like, yes, but now I'm a, I'm a caregiver. Now I'm experiencing it from this other side, this other lens. Um, and why it was so important for um, when I was, uh, you know, my sister and I would be sitting in, in, the, um, in the waiting room and not seeing physicians that look like her or I. Um, and her wanting to ask certain questions. And there's this a bit of nuance, right? Um, with our lived experiences in this world and her as a black woman um, who she was a nurse. So had, had experience and understanding of the healthcare system, but still seeking out like, well, I want to talk about this. I want to talk how it's going to impact this. I and, and feeling like she can't fully show up as herself. Um, and you imagine for our patients uh, in, in at least in, in my world where they're probably at the most vulnerable, well, honestly, any patient can, and when they're coming in, might feel they're at their most vulnerable state. And, and, and what we're saying is they can't show up as their full selves, even, even in that state. Um, like that's, that's heart-wrenching, right? I think that's hard to, to swallow. That's hard to kind of live with. And so I, I think having you know, in healthcare organizations, having clinicians of color, um, having uh, differently abled clinicians, like you're, you're giving other people permission to, to live as themselves, to show up as themselves, um, because they're seeing a shining example of someone in that organization 
like alive, thriving, like, oh, if you're here and you're in the position you're in, then it means that I am allowed to be here, right? Um, because we walk through this earth oftentimes, I think feeling like there are places that we're not allowed to be. Um, uh, and so I think often um, having the clinicians of color and, and folks who are providing care, and then certainly leaders, right? When you're within an organization and you see that representation at the highest levels, again, it's giving you this um, uh, kind of indirect permission that like you can be here and you can grow here and you can get to these, these types of, um, of uh, kind of stratus within the organization. And so that, that's a big deal. You know, if you, you think about like a little kid and you're telling them like, hey, you can be whatever you wanna be, but they don't see anyone that looks like them being what they wanna be. Like that, that has big implications and ramifications. And that doesn't change. I think we often separate the younger us, you know, those little kids in us, from who we are now, but like that doesn't change. When you're in an organization, you're like, oh, look at that. I wanna be that person and they look like me, then hmm, maybe it is possible. Um, and so not only is the representation at face value, uh, literally um, um, important, but I think how we create the environment around us to enable that, to encourage that, uh, to like cultivate that for people to feel like, they have a place that they belong. And it's so important. We spend more time at work and with our colleagues than we do with our own families, right? Um, why wouldn't you want it to be a place that you feel like you can be yourself, that you belong, um, that uh, beyond tolerated, you're accepted, you're wanted. Um, and, and I think the word you used before was you're valued. I'm like, that's a, that's a big deal. And I think, that gives people um, a lot of latitude to then be creative, be themselves. And, you know, there's tons of stats about like when you have more diverse organizations and like, this is what it can do for, for problem solving and, and the bottom line. And, and yes, I think the business case is super important and all of that is fantastic, but kind of that moral case of like, because it feels good and it feels right. And um, like every little kid wants to be wanted in a group, right? They don't wanna get picked last. Um, and like, you gotta think of your own organization in that same sense of like, how do you uh, create a place where people feel like they can come in, they can stay, they can grow. And throughout the entirety of that time, they're, they're wanted, they're valued, and they feel like they're contributing something. Cause I, I honestly believe when, when people feel that, like they're gonna give you everything that's, that they have in them um, uh, towards making that organization a great place. And certainly for us towards treating our, our patients. I <clears throat> am so sorry to hear about your sister and, and the journey that she had, but I know that she'd be so proud of all the work that you're doing and, and how you are transforming your team, how you're transforming the work that's being done at Dana-Farber. I mean, that's, um, I think that that's very powerful when you can experience something that's very painful like that and transform it into something that has a greater impact for the people that you serve. Is there anything that you can share of, of like how healthcare administrators can advance these efforts and why it's important that they engage in this? 
in terms of getting involved in, in some of these things, um, I want to caution people not to think that, you know, and I, I know I'm speaking kind of grandiose manners of like impact the most people, like change the world, right? Um, but your sphere of influence, certainly as a healthcare administrator, um, whatever service line, whatever group that you're leading and that you're in charge of, you're accountable for, like that's your sphere of influence and the people that are tangentially related or connected to that, um, do that. Work on that, the, the, the small piece of the world around you. Um, because if every single person did that, like entire, the entire world would change. Um, again, this is that like optimist that's in me. Um, so sphere of influence and certainly around um, like, what do you have control of? Uh, and and it, it could be something as small as like, I lead our, um, our department-wide meetings that we have every Tuesday, which means that I get to set the agenda, which means that I get to, if I want to make an announcement about something, I, I get to do that. And if it's say, hey, we are, um, the organization is, is, is uh, through the uh, human rights campaign, like, well, we're going to be talking about making sure you all know where you can access LGBTQ, uh, LGBTQ plus um, education and, and the education modules. It's on this website I'm, so that we're working towards um, ensuring that a large part of our organization are, are trained in, in our experience in this manner. If I wanna say like, hey, happy Black History Month, like I can do that, right? I think that's a little bit of autonomy, a little bit of power. But it's making those things come forefront. Um, so not only in the, the celebration, but the elevation of, of where people can go to get education. Um, if we're talking about books that are being read, if I want to invite someone to come talk about a particular subject matter um, for the meeting, like we can do that. And I think administrators, we often times feel like um, we are doing the daily operations things of like, all right, got to do this, got to do this, make sure this doesn't start a fire, put this fire out and do this. And, and we can, in every single opportunity and, and moment that we have is infuse um, kind of DEI elements. The, these are things that are just around the world and, and the way in which we operate now doesn't have to change dramatically. Like we just need to um, apply that kind of social justice lens to everything that we already do. If you're bringing a group together, cross collaboration, take a look at like, all right, here's the people I think that should be in the group. Um, hmm, what's missing? Like, this doesn't feel like it has a robust representation. If, you know, they're pulling a search committee together because you're looking for a new faculty, a new MD in the group, you know, you go to your director and say like, hey, so I, I looked at the list of folks on the search committee and I wanna talk to you about something. I think it's, you know, you don't have to be at the top of the building waving a, a, a flag, um, but you can be in every single one of those moments and be that voice that pushes, you know, that subject matter and ensures that like, are we looking at this um, from a lens that doesn't ostracize people? Are we thinking about this, um, that we're not leaving anyone out, someone's voice? Like who, who needs to be at the table um, when we're making these decisions? And we as administrators, we can do that because we're often the people who are 
pulling these groups and these individuals together. So we have a little bit of that um, influence. And I think it is using that influence to impact in your sphere of influence like that. You can do that because we do it all the time. When we need to get something done, it's like, I got to talk to this person. I know they're going to get it done. I'm going to talk to this person. So we already collaborate um, in that same manner. So I think it's is going through your world in the same way you usually do now with a new lens and a new perspective and then ensuring that um, it, it kind of permeates everything that you do. I love that advice. It's, it's like an, it's infusing everything that you do with that equity lens. A lot of organizations over the past year, especially, have really come out and said, okay, we're taking a, a big stand on diversity, equity, and inclusion. What would you say are ways to identify whether that's actually something that's a priority for the organization? You know, this is a hot button question right here because um, performative allyship or, or kind of the, the sense of like, at the end. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Um, is, is a big deal because uh, a lot of people are saying it um, of how they're going to allocate funds and resources towards diversity, equity, inclusion. And we've, we've hired this chief diversity, equity, inclusion officer, and we're doing this, we're doing this. Um, and so one of the things I always say in the same way that we're talking about our sphere of influence as administrators, when you think about the organization or the CEO or the COO or the CFO, I'm like, all right, what's your sphere of influence? And then how can you make these impacts? How can you apply that again, that equity and social justice lens to what you do? And so if we're saying we get all of our paper from this particular organization, you know, this, this particular vendor, we get whatever from this vendor, like how many of your vendors are, are women-owned businesses or minority-owned businesses? I'm like, these are, these are little things. You flip a switch and say, we wanna make sure, we're gonna go to this vendor. We're gonna go to this vendor now. And you're making huge economic impact for those vendors, for the areas in which they, they reside, for their families. And I'm like, this is what you need to do. You can continue doing what you usually do with that equitable lens apply to it. And I guarantee you, you have more impact than saying, like, we now have this, you know, these 10 commandments of diversity, equity, inclusion that we've put together that we promise we're going to do by the year, you know, 2050. Um, I think focusing on what we do really well and doing that for everyone and doing that in, in, in an equitable way is going to be um, way more transformative than any diversity statement. So, you know, the, diversifying your vendor base in the, in the businesses, small businesses that you work with. Um, for us in the cancer space, it's like, you know, if we get uh, the prosthetic wigs for, for our, our cancer patients um, and none of those are for naturally textured hair or curly hair or... I'm like, then, then again, that's like, we're leaving people out. You know, you're telling people that they're not here, that they're not seen, that they're not represented. And so it's like, think about everything that you already do and then apply that, that equity lens to it. And I promise you'll make um, great impact for a great amount of people.
A lot of times this is information you can find out through just like a website search, right? Or like whenever people are going into organizations, like people definitely have posted and you can see like, how long have they been involved in these efforts? Like, is this just something that started like last year? Is this something that, oh, they've been giving back to the community for the past like 20 years. And this is something Mm -hmm. that they've already been deeply involved in. So, um, so thank you for giving that, um, that answer and your insights. And I know we're closing on time. So I have a couple of rapid fire questions for you at the end of this interview. And these are just meant for, uh, for us, for the audience to get to know you a little bit more. So one is what is your Myers-Briggs personality type? ENFJ. Um, it's so funny that you asked that. I'm 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 ready for that because I you you were like, ready. I I am gonna I I'm an ENFP, so very close. Okay, yeah. What can we find you doing on most days outside of work? Uh, probably being some sort of imaginary monster that my daughter Maya um, forces me to be. <laughs> you know. Tell her happy early birthday, by the way. So she's going I will. For. <laughs> You'll be turning four, ready to change the world. Love it. What is your favorite place in Boston? My favorite place in Boston? Um, like if someone were traveling up here and they're like, what should I do? If there's one thing I could do while I'm here. Um, I love, you know, this is super biased, but I actually love Boston College's campus. <laughs> it's it's beautiful um it's it's really beautiful I remember the first time I went I'm like oh this is Hogwarts like this is what it is like I'm gonna become a wizard here because things look like old castles um and so I would say if, if you're able to like go go and visit campus it's gorgeous I can attest to that I did not go to BC but I did drive by it and I thought it was a castle <laughs> it was beautiful yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what is a book or podcast recommendation you can share with us? I would say a, a book, Medical Apartheid. Um, I, the, the author's name escapes me right now, but it talks about um, the history of medicine in the context of racism and, and prejudice. So, um, and, and why it's important is often, you know, right now we're talking about diversity, equity, inclusion, and what can we do? What can we do? Um, and and we forget about what has been taught and what kind of has been implanted and built into the medical industrial complex that we kind of reside in today, that if you're thinking about, you know, the history of GYN or the history of it, and then from the very beginning, elements of racism had been in it, like, you know, as we understand with systemic racism, it perpetuates itself. It's a self-correcting machine. So it kind of just the, the low hum of it just continues um, in that, you know, uh, underneath. And so um, it talks about all of that, all parts of, of medicine with the understanding of that, like where it started. Um, and I think why that's important is so that we understand what can we change now and how we approach things now. And certainly within medical education um, that will, be again transformative from uh, generations here on out. And that was called medical. I didn't catch a second. Apartheid. I will add to my reading list. How can our listeners connect to learn more about you or learn more about Dana Farber? Um, 
Dana Farber's got a website. Um, definitely uh, www.danafarber.org. Um, uh, people can hit me up on on LinkedIn. Um, I think you you had mentioned it before. Like just you never know if you. I, I might not be Dr. Fauci, but you know, like you can shoot me a a message on on LinkedIn. Connect there. Um, I'm on Twitter. My handle is Franz M. Berthod. Um, and yeah, I'm I, I'm I'm always willing to to chat with folks, especially I think people in in healthcare or at the intersection of of kind of uh, equity and, and health um, and, and tech. I'm a little bit of a nerd, um, so I'm I'm all about kind of chatting and meeting folks and, and learning about what they do um, and what uh, kind of mutual interests we have. Great. And as I mentioned before, you teach strategy at USPH. So definitely like you are a wealth of knowledge. Um, highly recommend people reach out to you. And my last question is, what is the best advice that you've received that you can share with us? Oh, the best advice that I've received um, is it's actually uh, from the strategy course, um, uh, we always reference, um, I think it's Peter Drucker has a quote that says, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Um, and shout outs to Professor Chris Lewis, that's my guy. Um, and we talk about this, right? We talk about how organizations, and certainly when you think about uh, DEI, um, organizations are putting together these, you know, million point plans. We're going to do this and this and this and this and this and this. Um, but if the organization's culture doesn't enable for that, then it, it's all for naught. And, and so people understanding that within organizations, how um, integral it is and how important it is that we are trying to shift culture as much as we're trying to move initiatives um, is, is critical. Like, like you can do whatever and say you're gonna do uh, whatever you want, um, but if the people within that place don't um, allow for, for those changes to, to come, then um, those changes will not come. Uh, and I think so that that's certainly one of the biggest lessons for me and how I approach a lot of things is, is how do I find that sweet spot between like, let's get this thing off the ground, but it, ensure that we are lifting the people with it. That I think is a perfect way to end this episode. Franz, it was amazing talking to you. I, it's always so good seeing you via Zoom and connecting yeah. with you and just having you share Absolutely. your your story and the awesome work that you're doing. So I can't thank you enough for being on today. Uh, it was an honor and, and a pleasure. And I'm just so so glad to see this this space and, and, and for folks to, to learn from you and hear your voice. Um, and the folks that you're kind of bringing to the table. Um, it's awesome. Thank you so much for being here and for listening to this episode. If this is your first time here, welcome. Please click on the subscribe button wherever you're listening. And if you enjoyed the episode, please be sure to leave a rating or review of the part you enjoyed the most. I look forward to meeting you all back here soon.